Well, go ahead and grab your Bible. Stay standing. Uh, stay standing this morning. Open your Bible to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. If you have one of the black hardcover Bibles, that's on page 973. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors. and uh, glad to see you this morning. Nice full room. Uh, just so you know, there are some open seats at 830. So if any of you want to want to get up a little earlier and clear some room out, we would love to, to see that, but great to see so many of you here now. Um, as I said, Galatians 3, verses 1 through 9, page 973, and as I read this, remember we're reading God's Word. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now that's God's word. You can be seated. We are right in the heart of our study of the book of Galatians, what we've called fighting for grace. Uh, We've called it that because grace is something that has to be fought for. Uh, Grace is uh, counterintuitive to how uh, we normally experience the world, and it's a fight to believe it. We also call it fighting for grace because the Apostle Paul uses very strong and combative language in uh, this book in general, specifically in this passage, to help us fight for grace. If you want to see that grace is is counterintuitive, uh, you look no further than one of the great theologians of our day, Bono. Bono, of you two, I think he has some insight here. Here's what he has to say about grace. Some of you have been around a while, you know I love this quote, you've heard this before. Uh, Bono says this, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma, You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws. Every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news, indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep trouble. Doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Now, you can debate about Bono and how much you like him or dislike him or what you think his faith is with the Lord. That's not particularly important for me right now. Uh, The important thing is is to see that Bono's absolutely right. 
the whole world functions uh, on this idea of karma. Now, I don't think that karma is a, a reality in the world. God governs the world. But I think his point that, that everyone functions in this, what goes around comes around, you, you get what you've earned kind of thing, and grace upends that, he says. And he says that's very good news because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. What's happening in the book of Galatians is you have people who have been captivated by grace. They've seen that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, but then some other false teachers from the church in Jerusalem have come to this region, have come to these churches, and have communicated a message of Jesus plus. Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus works of the law. Jesus plus, in this case, circumcision and kosher and other Jewish ceremonial laws. It's Jesus plus. It's saying, don't depend only on Jesus. Depend on Jesus and your religiosity. And grace comes along and upends that and says, no, no, no. I'm so thankful that I can cast myself on Jesus. He died on the cross. He's enough. I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. We're at the beginning of chapter 3 here. This begins a new section for us. Chapters 1 and 2 were more of a personal section. Paul talking through his own story and his interaction with the Galatians and how he received the gospel. In chapters 3 and 4, he's going to lay out a thick, robust theological argument for why uh, we can only be made right with God and accepted by God and approved of by God through faith in Christ. He's going to say this is how it's always been. He's going to give lots of different examples And he launches this argument uh, today in these opening verses of chapter 3. Now, I haven't said this a lot through the series, but one of the key ideas of this series, the theme, if you will, is the theme freedom. Freedom. We'll come to it big time in chapter 5. Turn to chapter 5, verse 1 real fast. In chapter 5, Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This Jesus plus idea, this uh, Jesus plus works of the law, is just submitting again to a yoke of slavery, enslaving yourself to your own behavior, to your own willpower. He says that's not freedom. And so freedom is a big deal in this book. That's one of the reasons why we've kept singing uh, the song uh, most of the weeks of this series, Free Indeed. Celebrating that if we're in Christ, we're free indeed. And that song represents so much of the truth that is found in this book. We'll sing that a little bit later uh, in our gathering here today. But if you want to live a life of freedom, freedom, not freedom to be selfish. That's not true freedom. That's just slavery to self. But freedom to do what you want to do. Freedom to do what's loving. Freedom to do what's joyful. Freedom from what people think. and do, do, do you want, all, all in on freedom? Who, who wants a life of freedom? Okay? If you're going to be free, you have to understand what Paul's talking about. This passage is, is the key to understanding freedom in Christ. Last week's message, looking at Galatians 2, 15 through 21, is the key to understanding how to know God. This passage is the key to understanding how to live in freedom. So that's where we're going to be here today. Here's the big idea. If you're going to write something down or take one main thing home, it would be this. The gospel is sufficient to begin your relationship with God and to grow your relationship with God. 
the gospel, the, the message of good news that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death in your place and in mine on the cross and then was raised to conquer sin and death. That message of the gospel is sufficient. It's enough to begin your relationship with God and to grow it. We looked last week in depth at how the gospel is sufficient to start it, to begin it. We'll look more today at how it continues it. But I I like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this passage in uh, his his paraphrase called The Message. Some of you have read The Message. And uh, I I like it because he captures the tone of this. And, And it doesn't take a lot to see Paul is being aggressive here, isn't he? He's being sarcastic. Now, someone that has the gift of sarcasm as I do, you may see why I so love this book. It's one of my favorites. And I love, I just love how he gets after him. And so I I love Peterson's uh, paraphrase. He says, you crazy Galatians, did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened, for it's obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God, or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you were smart enough, or if you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? Did you go through this whole painful learning process for nothing? It is not yet a total loss, but it certainly will be if you keep this up. Answer this question. Does the God who lavishly provides you with his own presence, his Holy Spirit, working things in your lives you could never do for yourselves, does he do these things because of your strenuous moral striving or because you trust him to do them in you? I think that really captures the heart of the passage. Uh, So let's look at these first two verses back to the ESV text is what I'm working out of here. That the gospel is sufficient to begin your relationship with God. This is the truth that we looked at last week called justification. Justification, being declared righteous before God. Here's what Paul says. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Uh, Peterson said, who put a hex on you? The, The word literally means to cast an evil spell on someone with the eye. It means to give them the evil eye. Ladies, (laughs) Ladies, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. She looked at me funny. She gave me the evil eye. It's the evil eye. He's saying, what's going on? Is there a hex on you? What's the problem? Like, you're not seeing things straight here. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, Paul's not saying you guys were there at the crucifixion. He's just saying it's been communicated to you. It's been explained to you that clearly Jesus Christ vividly died on a cross, and that that is the basis of your faith. Back in chapter 2, in verse 21, the last verse of that chapter, he said this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Saying, guys, guys, whoa, 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 what are you doing? This is crazy. Are, are you going to act like Christ died for nothing? You, you, you based your whole life on that. You, you trusted that, and now you're going to add something to it. Are, are you, what? Right, that's kind of his, his, his tone. Verse 2, 
And then he asks, he begins a bunch of rhetorical questions, right? Rhetorical questions designed to make a point, not really to be answered as much to drive the point home. Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive the Spirit? This is a, a word now, that, uh, of the idea of the Spirit. Paul's going to talk about that a lot in chapters 5 and 6. He gets ahead of himself a little bit here. But the idea of receiving the Spirit is that a person receives the Spirit of God as they place their trust in Christ. It's another way to talk about being justified. Now, here's uh, the definition of justification, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is justification is an act of free grace by which he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now, now that's Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? So it's a little wordy. Here's what it means. It's a free gift of grace where you're declared righteous on the basis of what Jesus did. And that's what we looked at last week. Go back to 2, 16. Declared righteous on the basis of Jesus. He says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul here then in in chapter 3, verse 2, equates receiving the Spirit. Receiving the Spirit is the same as as being justified. It's It's the idea that Jesus talked about in John 3 where he said, you must be born again. Right? It wasn't like radical right-wingers who invented the term born again. It was Jesus. So you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't think my mom's all that interested in me getting back in there and coming out again. I don't think that's going to work. And he goes, no, 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 Nicodemus, you're thinking physical. That's not, that's not it. It's, it's spiritual. You need to be born of water. You have your, your sins cleansed. And you need to be born of the Spirit, made a new creation in Christ. And Paul says, did you receive that by doing really good stuff or by hearing with faith? What's the answer? Let's try it again. Did, you re- did they receive it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hearing with faith. They received this gift of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this is good news. The Christian life comes with batteries included. And that's an important thing, that that Paul brings up the Spirit, because it's really life by the Spirit that allows us to keep trusting and keep depending and keep hoping in Jesus and not in ourselves. The gospel is sufficient to begin your relationship with God. And I would say it actually this way in this case, the gospel is necessary to begin your relationship with God. There is no hope of beginning a relationship with God apart from faith in Christ. That was the point of 2.16. Apart from works, or by works of the law, no one will be justified. So it's, it's necessary, it's sufficient for that. But then Paul is going to say, it's not just sufficient to begin it, it's also sufficient to grow in it. Look at verses, uh, starting in verse 3. Again, he calls them foolish. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? See, you started by the Spirit, and now you're in this process of being perfected. That's the idea of being made more holy and more righteous. So so in justification, you're declared righteous. 
this process of spiritual growth, uh, what theologians would call sanctification, is the process of actually becoming righteous. Do you get the difference? Justification, being declared righteous, someone else's counts for you. Sanctification, you're actually starting to become more loving, more caring, more joyful, more generous, more sacrificial. You get that? And he's saying, you started by the Spirit, which you got by hearing with faith. Are you now trying to grow? Are you trying to be perfected by the flesh? Now, the word flesh in the Bible means a number of things. Sometimes it means just the physical body. Uh, Often it will refer to immorality or passionate sensuality kind of thing. Uh, That's what's referred in in chapter 5. Here it just means effort, human effort, human will, willpower. He's saying, you started by the Spirit. Why are you trying to now complete it by yourself in your own strength? Here's the definition of sanctification. The sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. More and more, by the work of God's free grace in your life, you're able to say no to sin and yes to following Jesus. Now, notice something about these definitions of justification and sanctification. I think the Westminster uh, folks here get this exactly right, that they both depend on God's free grace, right? So, justification is an act of God's free grace where he declares you righteous. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace where he progressively makes you righteous. Both of them by grace. And that's Paul's whole point here. See, the the tendency in these Galatians, and the tendency in Christians throughout history, the tendency in evangelicals in America, the tendencies in Redemption Church, the tendency in me, is to say, yeah, I know I'm saved by grace through faith. But how, how I grow and how God feels about me along the way and how, how much boldness I can have in prayer and how, how much courage I can have to risk, and that depends on me. And Paul here is saying, no. They both depend on hearing with faith, living by the Spirit. You can't do this by the flesh. Uh, Mike Shea says this about the flesh. He says, the flesh is not just passionate sensuality, it's also proud morality. Hedonistic prostitution and humanistic philanthropy, Paul calls both flesh. And the latter is as powerless to sanctify you as the former. It's clear that you're not going to grow in holiness, grow in righteousness, grow in love for God by pursuing passionate sensuality and immorality. That's clear. That makes obvious sense. His point is, you're not going to do it by laboring under your own willpower either. It's got to be by hearing with faith. And so Paul says, verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? In other words, you've you've sacrificed, you've suffered to believe this. And, And is it all for nothing? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. 
Here's the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus' sacrifice accomplishes both our justification and our sanctification. Jesus' death on the cross does both. And so I want to take you to one of my favorite passages that makes this so clear in Hebrews chapter 10. I love this passage. We'll put it on the screen. You can make a note of it if you want, uh, especially verse 14. This is a passage I go to a lot when I celebrate communion, when I go to the Lord's table, to remind myself that God is at work in me, even when I don't feel like it. And so here's, here's what's going on in the book of Hebrews. Now, the author of Hebrews is contrasting uh, the, the Old Testament approach to sacrifice with the far superior and fulfillment approach of Jesus and saying this is, this is better. And so he says, Hebrews 10, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You know, under the Old Testament system, it was every day for sacrifices and every year and every month and on and on. It was never sufficient. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What do you do after you work really hard? You sit down. Jesus did the work. Verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And then listen to this. This is where, how many of you like grammar? few of you like grammar. Grammar is like really important. Those of you who are school teachers, I know you love grammar, so thank you for raising your hand. This is so key. Listen listen to this. This is mind-blowing. Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Okay, now, perfected. That's the same word that's used in Galatians 3.3. Same exact word. Are you trying to be now perfected by the flesh? And here he's saying that Jesus Christ, through his uh, death in our place on the cross, has perfected those who would believe. He has done it. That is a completed action in past time. Has perfected. And again, this idea of perfected is to be made whole, to be made complete, to be made actually righteous in your life. Jesus has made this happen by his death on the cross. For those who are being sanctified. (laughs) Do you get this? So Jesus has done it. It is finished. Completed action in the past for those who are currently experiencing the results of it. For those who are being sanctified. Jesus purchased it. He did it. It's enough. That is why those who are elected will be called. And those who will be called will be justified. And those who, will be, who are justified will be glorified. It is why Paul can write in Philippians 1 that he who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion. It is why he can say that you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who wills and works for his good pleasure. Jesus has done this. Jesus' work was sufficient. It was enough. Therefore then, how do we grow? Do we grow by saying, I need to, I need to get a bunch of rules. I need to get a lot of things I got to get done, and I got to do those and make sure I do my list. I gotta... No, you grow by faith, by trusting Christ. 
by fighting to believe that he's sufficient and he is better. Some people came to Jesus one time, and they were always testing him, trying to see what he would say. And and one time they came to him and said, Teacher, uh, what good works must we do to be doing the works of God? Right? That's what everyone's asking. If if you start to ask religious or spiritual questions, what do I got to do? What goes around comes around. I I reap what I sow. I got to be a good person. What do I need to do? You know what Jesus replied? John 6, 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. That's that's it. Trust Jesus. He's enough. He's enough to begin your relationship. He's enough to grow it. Tim Keller says that the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. I love that word discovery, right? It's like when you discover something, it's like, whoa, it's an aha. The key to to deeper renewal, deeper revival. You go, I I feel like I'm I'm stagnant. I feel like I'm stale. I feel like my prayers just bounce off the ceiling. I I just, I don't feel like I'm going anywhere in my spiritual life. What's your tendency? I gotta make a list. I gotta get disciplined. I gotta do these things. Those things are fine if they lead you into a continual rediscovery of the gospel. I want to share with you an illustration that that for us as a church has really defined what we mean when we say gospel-centered. And what we mean is simply that the gospel is sufficient to bring you to relationship with God and to grow you in it. And this is a diagram that some of you have seen. We've shown this a number of places in our membership class, whatever. For those of you that are visual learners, I think this will be particularly helpful. Uh, Anyone who comes to faith in Christ, uh, some of you have had this experience, Uh, Some of you, maybe you're in the middle of this experience now. What happens before a person puts their faith in Jesus is they realize something. They realize they have a huge need. Because there's God's holiness on one side, God's standard of perfection, God's expectation that you be perfect as he is perfect. That he will not look upon sin or sinners That he will by no means clear the wicked. God's standard of holiness. And then you come to a realization that you are sinful. Now, many people don't ever have that experience. They just go through life blinded thinking they're good. But but when you come to a point where God is working in your heart, you realize, I I, I ain't doing it. I'm not good enough. I'm I'm not good enough even to make my life turn out the way I want, let alone to have eternal life. And you realize there's this gap. And then someone comes to you and they they proclaim the gospel to you. They share it over lunch or you read a Bible or you read a book or you hear a message like this and you realize that there is one hope to bridge this gap and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. The perfect life, the death in your place, his resurrection. That faith in that is enough to bridge the gap and only that. And you know what happens when this happens? you're, You're born again. You're made new. You're a new creature in Christ, and you have the Spirit of God in you, and there is joy. Realize, I know God. But then 
you keep living your life and you start to read the Bible or you take a class or you study some truth about God or you get to know just your own life and you realize something else. You realize that God is holier than you thought and you are worse. You know, I, I, I thought that I was... I thought that I was at the bottom of myself, but, but I was just looking at my actions. Now I'm starting to look at my thoughts and at my motivation, and I realize I am darker and more depraved than I ever realized. And I read the Bible about God's holiness and about God's standard, and I realize He's way holier than I, than I ever knew. Again, you feel this gap. And so what's so sad is for, for, for many Christians, and I don't know, you can unpack why this is. I think it's just that, that self-salvation, religion, is a, just the default setting of the human heart. But what happens is for most people, their understanding of the cross, their understanding of, of what Jesus has done in the gospel never grows. It stays the same. And so instead, they try to fill in the gap with their performance. They try to be perfected by the flesh, by works of the law. And what happens is you see it doesn't cover the gap. And so when they do well at the top, and I know the lettering there is small, when they do well, when they achieve the mark, right? So they set up rules. I've, I've got to read my Bible this much. I've got to pray this much. I've got to do this many date nights. I've got to serve. I've got to be involved. I've got to da 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 There's lists of rules. When I do it, I'm proud moralistic. I'm self-justified. I look down my nose at people that aren't as disciplined as me. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And you become this really ugly kind of Christian. Right? Any, anyone never met someone like that? They're a peach, right? It's because their view of the gospel has been very, very small. And, and so their view of themselves tends to rise. Now on the flip side, when you fail... You, you feel this overwhelming sense of guilt. I started the Bible reading in a year, and it's February 12th, and I've already given up, and I'm terrible, and I, you know, and this, this guilt, God could never love me, and, and, and fear, and self-hatred, and insecurity. Notice, this is just as prideful. It's just as self-focused. One is focusing on how great you are. One is focusing on how bad you are. Neither are focusing on how great Jesus is. And so what we need is this continual rediscovery of the gospel where we see that Jesus' life, death, resurrection is sufficient to begin our relationship with God and to grow it. We, we do what it says in Colossians 2.6, that just as we received Christ Jesus, how do we do that? By faith, we so walk in that way. This continual rediscovery, and, and, and that is how you can live a life of boldness and humility. See, some of you, you're here, some of you I know, and you're not a follower of Christ yet, and one of the critiques you've had about the church and about the gospel, one of the reasons it just doesn't feel very plausible to you, is you've experienced people who are just as afraid, just as arrogant, just as insecure as everyone else you know. And you go, well, if if this thing's true, why? Listen, the problem's not with the gospel. The problem's that the person didn't functionally continue to believe it. The gospel is enough. 
See, there's two approaches to fighting sin. There's the legalistic approach of restriction. Make some rules. I can't do this. Uh, this is, I think, wonderfully illustrated by, um, you, some of you know, in Greek mythology, there was the idea of the siren songs, right? These sirens that would sing this beautiful song, and the sailors would sail through this passage, and they would hear the song, and they would be so enchanted by the temptation of that song that they would inevitably steer towards it and, and go into the rocks and, and destroy themselves and their, their crew. And so everyone knew you got to do something to fight this temptation. The approach of, of law, the approach of legalism, the approach of the Judaizers in this book of Galatians was the approach of Odysseus. He filled his ears with wax and he said, tie me to the mast so that I can't grab the steering wheel and tear, steer towards it, right? Restrict me. And everything in him just wanted to do, right? Just, oh, he heard the song and he just couldn't. That's the approach of law. Here is the approach of Orpheus. This is the approach of faith. Is he got out his harp and he played a more beautiful song so it would drown out the temptation of the siren. Tim Chester writes about that in his book, You Can Change. He says this, the grace of the gospel sings a far more glorious song than the enticements of sin if only we have the faith to hear its music. Is the song, I, I hope over the course of this series that the song of the gospel is sounding more and more beautiful to you. See, we might think that, well, if, if I have this idea that I'll be fully accepted, it will make me run into sin. Actually, it's the other way around. If someone tells you, I love you, if they sacrifice for you, if they pour themselves out for you, does that, doesn't that make your heart draw towards them? You want to follow them? That's how it is with Christ. So Paul says, go back to Galatians 3, verse 5. He says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Notice in verse 2, he said, did you receive the Spirit? Past tense. In verse 5, he says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you? Present tense. How will you have a fresh supply of God's Spirit? How will you experience, as it says in verse 5, miracles among you? When things happen that just don't make sense, and when you have a power that you just shouldn't have, how will that happen? effort, by law, by rules, no, by hearing with faith. Just touch on verses six through nine, we'll get into this more in the coming weeks as Paul unfolds this argument, but basically his point in, in verses six through nine is that it's always been like this. This isn't new, right? Sometimes people have the idea that the Old Testament was a you know, you, you could get to God by, by obeying the law, and the New Testament is grace. That's not true. And Paul's going to make that argument in the rest of this book, is that it's always been by grace through faith. And he goes to an example in verse 6 of Abraham. Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteous. He was declared righteous. He was counted righteous. He was justified. That promise was enough. He says, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You want to follow after the, the line of Abraham, Galatians? It's not through circumcision. It's not through kosher. It's through faith. 
The gospel is sufficient to begin your relationship with God and to grow it. So what I want to conclude with here is, is what difference does this make? I mean, how, how does this really work? What, so what? So here's, here's three ideas about how sanctification, that process of growing, is connected to really trusting in what we've experienced in justification. Here's the first one. Is that sanctification flows from remembering justification. Sin is always forgetting what God has done for us. Sanctification flows from remembering. See, when you remember, oh yes, God loved me so much that even while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. The more you remember that, the more it melts your heart, the more you think about that. And that really is the fight for holiness. It's the fight to believe that that's true. The more that you remember it, the easier it is to say no to sin. The more you forget it, the easier it is to embrace sin. So one of my favorite examples is from Jeff Vanderstelt, a pastor who's part of the network we're in. And he tells the story of this guy that he was discipling who had a life-dominating struggle with purity, particularly internet-related purity issues. And so uh, this, guy, this guy fell, and he, he sinned, and he blew it. And he came to Jeff a week or so later and said, hey man, I, I blew it. I blew it again. Jeff said, well, how long did it take you from the time that you sinned to the time that you went to the foot of the cross? That you prayed to be cleansed and renewed and to remember who God says you are in him. And he said, that was about five days. He said, so for those five days, you were practicing self-justification. I'm made right with God. I can approach God only if I get to the point where I feel bad enough about myself. I need to flog myself. I need to really convince myself that I'm so sad that I did this. He says, what would happen if, if next time, instead of it taking five days, what if it took four? Because you were more eager to believe that, that God actually does accept you, not on the basis of your sin, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. He said, wow, that'd be, yeah, that would be good. He said, well, what if it was three days? And what if it was two days? And he, Jeff said, what if you got to the point where the moment after you sinned, you fell on your knees and you said, Jesus, I'm so thankful for your cross. I'm so thankful that you died in my place. I'm so thankful for your grace. The guy said, well, if it was a second after I did it, I wouldn't do it. I said, that's exactly right. See, sanctification flows from remembering that you've been accepted by God by his grace. Here's the second thing, and this one has particularly, I don't know, this one's just really resonated with me uh, this week in thinking these issues through, is number two, sanctification flows from joyfully admitting your hopelessness apart from Jesus, while sin is pridefully overestimating your ability. There's a couple words in there that don't go together. Did you see them? Sanctification flows from joyfully admitting your hopelessness. Those are not ideas that go together, right? Joyful people are generally not hopeless, and hopeless people are generally not joyful. But you will grow in your ability uh, to, to be close to Christ and to say no to sin to the degree that you will joyfully admit 
that you're hopeless, that you don't have the resources. You will sin if you think you can in your own strength overcome sin and, and, and fulfill the expectations you or someone else has of you. You overestimate your ability. Bob Coughlin is a worship leader who writes about his story. He's, a, I think, in his 50s, and a number of years ago, he, he battled a three-year bout of hopelessness. It's characterized by depression and anxiety, panic attacks, even physical itching. Three years. Some of you have been there. Some of you are there now. Hopeless. He went to a pastor friend of his, and he confessed, ah, I'm hopeless. And the pastor said something that shocked him. The pastor said, I don't think you're hopeless enough. He thought he was kidding. He said, well, what? He said, if you were completely hopeless, you'd stop trusting in what you think you can do to change the situation, and you'd start trusting in what Jesus has already done. You're not hopeless enough. You still think you have the resources to overcome this. And if you will joyfully admit that you don't, if you will in the, the, remember John 15 where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, apart from me you can do nothing. We remember that? And so Coughlin started to remember that and he would think to himself when he would start to get discouraged, I am a hopeless person and Jesus Christ died for hopeless people. Only when you can joyfully admit that can you start to make progress. Another man, Jack Miller, an author I love, uh, has passed away, is with the Lord now, but he did work in, in uh, Philadelphia among inner city and uh, just people going through a lot of different challenges and often people feeling discouraged and overwhelmed by life. You know what he would tell them? He'd say, cheer up. You're worse than you think. See, I, I, I know many of you, and as I get to know you, and as I spend time with you, and as I talk with leaders, and just kind of get the pulse of what's going on in our church, here, here's what I know. A number of you are overwhelmed. You're overwhelmed by the expectations at work. You're overwhelmed by the expectations of ministry. You're overwhelmed by the expectations of having a family, all the changes that brings. Some of you, you're, you're far from home, you're far from those who love you, you've gone through a difficult thing, you've gone through a loss of a job, gone through the loss of a marriage. You're worn out, you're tired, and you're beat down. Things have not turned out the way you hoped. Cheer up, you're worse than you think. <laughs> See, it's only when you get there that Jesus will become the one that you can focus on. Until then, you'll, you'll just focus on you and your situation and your circumstances and how bad you have it. Will you get to the bottom of yourself? Will you believe, I'm far worse than I think? Will you trust him? Finally, sanctification flows from new, deep soul satisfaction that God loves me. Apart from this assurance, the heart hungers to be filled with other things. 
You need to be certain that God approves of you, certain that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's what Romans 8.1 says. Are you certain of that? Do you believe that? Only when you are satisfied that that is true will you stop trying to fill the, the, the bottomless needs that you have with other stuff. Only then will you go, God's enough. I've got enough. I experienced a kind of this kind of assurance when I was in college. I, I, I played baseball at the University of Illinois, and um, my first year I was a designated hitter. I had gone through a, a shoulder surgery before I went to college, and some of you that aren't baseball fans, they say in baseball there's five tools that players would have, and occasionally a player has all five. They're a five-tool player. Those are uh, running, uh, throwing, uh, defense, hitting, and hitting with power. Right, so the people that do that are like well, the all-stars, right? That's five-tool player. I was a one-and-a-half-tool player. Maybe like a one. I was a tool. <laughs> and so I could, I could hit, and so I, my freshman year, I, I, I DH some. The sophomore year, played first base. And the thing I would do pretty much every year, just the, the way that my season tended to go, is I would usually start out pretty hot, and then a few weeks into it, I would slump. And it would be a bad slump, like can't hit your... It can't hit water if you fell out of a boat kind of slump. And my sophomore year, uh, it actually made, I lost, I lost my first base job. Another guy was playing well, playing better. He took the job. I started playing less. Ended up getting to DH some more throughout the rest of the year and played some, but didn't play as much as I, as I would have had I not gone through that. So my junior year, our third baseman had graduated, and I played third earlier in, in my life, and so I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to win that job. And so I, I worked hard, and I, uh, and I had a lot of competition, and, and worked hard and won the third base job. So I'm starting at third base my junior year, and uh, go through the normal thing. Start off the year really good, hit the slump. Last year, lost my job. So I'm putting this pressure on myself. I mean, like every... Everything rises and falls with every bat, every pitch. Coach Jones calls me into his office and he says, Luke, I just want you to know that no matter what, you're our third baseman. That changed everything. Some of you, you know that kind of pressure. You're feeling it at, at work. You've had some, court, some sort of layoff thing don't know exactly where it's headed and it's hanging over your head. Some of you feel that at home in your marriage. You gotta live up to this. One more thing and he might be gone. She might be gone. Do you know the freedom that comes from someone saying, hey, you're our guy. It was, it was unbelievable. Instead of having to prove myself, I could, just, I could just enjoy that truth. And do you know that rather than making me say, well, I don't really care about Coach Jones anymore, it actually made me more loyal to him. Made me appreciate and love him more. And the same thing is true. So, some of you, you just are living under this constant sense that you're never doing enough for God. What this passage is saying is, will you just believe that He's done enough for you. Will, you. will you let God call you into his office? See, some of you, if, if, if you heard, hey, God's in his office, he wants to see you right now. Oh. 
what I do, right? You live with that constant sense. Oh, what I do. Now, are you guilty? Yes. Do you deserve to stand before God? No. But Jesus was enough. And so will you let God call you into his office and say, I love you. No matter what, you're my daughter. No matter what, you're my son. I can't love you more. I won't love you less. You're in Christ. You're mine. Will you just let that truth hit your heart? You can make all the rules you want until that truth hits your heart. You'll never really be free to love God even the way you know you should. I'm going to invite the band to come up and... uh, Christy Brazelton is going to join them. And I want to encourage you can go ahead and put your Bibles away or your study guides, anything you're working on there. And uh, I've asked Christy to sing a song. Uh, it's off of her album called Wondrous Things. It's a song called Already Mine. And I think it just so wonderfully illustrates uh, everything that Paul is talking about in this passage that Jesus is enough. And that if we have him, We don't need to strive for what we already have. And so I want to just encourage you to, uh, as as the band plays and as they sing this, we'll put the the lyrics on the the wall there, on on the screen. And if you would just, however you want to do it, if you want to shut your eyes and listen, if you want to look at the words, but let let the truth of God's grace, God's abundant, amazing, never stopping, never giving up, unfailing, always and forever, Love, let that wash over your heart. Hey, Christy. We welcome Christy.
line, what's it worth to hear good news if you don't believe it's true? Let's believe it. Let's hear with faith. We're going to respond now by celebrating communion. And we do this every week for this very reason, that we need to be reminded that Jesus is enough. So if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come to the table. There's tables here in the corners there by the pole. And we would invite you to come and to take the bread representing Jesus' perfect life lived for you. And take the cup representing Jesus' blood that died and it was shed to forgive sins that you really do commit. You could go to him for forgiveness and acceptance and grace. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Christ, uh, I, I want to tell you that the scripture tells us that communion is for followers of Christ. Your next step would be to trust Christ. You can take uh, that step now and, and pray to him and call out to him and ask him to, to save and forgive you. Then it would be to be baptized and then to celebrate communion. But for now, take this time and pray and think and reflect on these things. The band is going to continue to lead us. We're going to sing uh, songs of God's love for us and his care. Also, for those of you that, that like to respond through giving,